Welcome to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we sit down and talk with thought leaders and experts on the issues and opportunities in the marketing and business world. I'm Anton Bushner with another conversation on the rise of artificial intelligence and the impact it's having on marketing. Today I'm with Alistair Herbert. He's the founder of research consultancy Lingua Brand, and he's all the way sitting over in London in the UK. Welcome, Alistair. Hi there, Anton. Yeah, and it's it's quite warm here, so uh, windows are open. So if you hear barking dogs, police cars, or squawking birds, you'll know the reason why. There's nothing to do with COVID. It's actually just to do with uh, enjoying what a summer. Now, I'm really excited to have a chat with you today. Uh, we're going to delve in a little bit more and dive into the language or psychology of language for brands. That's right, yes. Yeah. As in most communications, I think most people realise that uh, the vast majority of it is actually subconscious. Um, so we uh, we sort of lift the lid, really, on, on that subconscious element. And uh, hopefully by the end of this session, your listeners will have a much better understanding of, um, of, of how communications work. Excellent. I'm sure they'll be excited. Before we jump in, I, I met you relatively recently through a colleague, Jeremy Taylor Riley. Now, he's, he's not a colleague of yours, I believe. He is, he is. Well, we, we actually go back to school days together. And um, what was great is that we, we, I think this was back when dinosaurs ruled the earth, of course. And um, yeah, when marketing was effectively, uh, yeah, it was a relatively new subject. I studied marketing at Lancaster University when, in, in England, when it was only the only university where you could study marketing as an undergraduate, would you believe? Mm-hmm. And Jeremy went off on, a, a, you know, having been friends at school, what was fantastic is he went off around the world and, of course, has ended up in Sydney. And he went agency side, yeah. whereas I was working for, I was marketing uh, uh, director of Invesco Fund Managers. I was marketing director of FTSE, so I was working in the city before switching into what we do now. So I really understand what it's like to be a marketing director. Yeah. And then we then, you know, we started doing work together. We were working together in the Middle East, and Jeremy was there. Actually, I was working on a project for a, a company that Jeremy was working with at the inception. So, you know, Bob, our word, uh, sort of deep listening robot, and the whole lingual brand concept was actually conceived in Sydney. Oh, there you go. Well, Jeremy's a great man and he introduced me to you, so uh, this should be a fantastic discussion. I'm excited. He, he was the promotions king, so I worked with him on Foxtel in the very early days doing uh, worldwide sales promotions. So, Yeah, we are, I think the big thing is we're all, we're all practical people, aren't we? You know, let's get things yeah. done. Well, I'm interested. Let's delve in. Lingua brand. So lingua uh, is what? Latin for tongue. That's right. That's right. I mean, we're talking about you know how brands speak and 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 what had the way that they communicate. I mean, I was really frustrated as a marketing director at the amount of investment I was having to make and the effort I was putting in. That was essentially on gut feel, you know, of a large number of, of, of large of, of intelligent people, perhaps with me as the exception. But we were we were sort of talking about things like brand differentiation and not really understanding what it was. I mean, and if you don't understand what makes things similar, how on earth can you know what makes them different yeah so i was really into positioning brands i mean trout and reese that was a big big um uh, big thing for me to have to to learn about brand positioning from from their perspective and the other thing was this reliance on on focus groups and 
I was doing a lot of research. In fact, when I was made director, I, the first thing I did was was was, was increase the at Invesco. I, I increased the research budget by three times. Yeah, you know, I was re- really aware that that we weren't getting what people were really doing, and and I came across that famous Ogilvy quote. You know, consumers don't think how they feel, and they don't say what they think, and they don't do what they say. And that was in 1960. And mm. here we are today. I mean, focus groups, don't get me wrong. If you want to find out functional things and, and improvements, then they're fine. But why people ask people what they think of, of put, you know, take a group of strangers, put them into a strange situation, and yeah. then ask them what they think of campaigns or, or what, why they did things or what they do and think that they're going to get anything reasonable out of it is beyond me. Yeah. And that was really why I wanted to answer those issues. You know, how do we differentiate brands? How do we understand what makes brands the same? And how do we understand what people are thinking and, and feeling? And, to be, and, and I was really strongly motivated by reducing waste. Mm. You know, on the input side, let's reduce waste. And I actually think that, that CFOs and chief executives would have more respect for us as marketing people, if we said, yes, hands up, we know we're wasting things. And, and that, that's not bad. I mean, the, steam engines, I remember looking up steam engines, the, the calorific waste of a steam engine, you get 3% of the energy out that you put in. Yeah. And the internal combustion engine, it's 9%. But where would we be without those two things? So we should, we're always progressing and then looking to become you know, more efficient at what we do. And that's about understanding evidence and just taking out this gut feel. Well, it's been an age-old problem, hasn't it? I think with marketers uh, through the decades, um, certainly pre-digital, it was you know, classic, which half of my marketing is working. Um, as we've moved through the digital age and you can measure everything, and as we all talk about data and uh, drowning in data, um, yeah. measurement has gone for, for measurement's sake but it's still coming back to the age-old problem. What's working? What's not working? And I love how you're talking about differentiation or positioning because we're now seeing brands so similar playing in the same territories and, as you probably say, sounding similar, trying to look a bit different. Yeah, I think this is the the big deal, actually, Anton. If you look at them, I think at at the root of virtually every campaign failure, every product failure, is is a lack of understanding about what consumers really want and and over similarity or in some cases going too different i mean smokeless cigarettes um offset mortgages you know they were too far away from what people wanted and what we've done by measuring vast numbers of brands we've we've actually discovered that that a brand needs to be anchored into its market with with sort of core ideas you know, so what makes a bank a bank? What makes a single malt whiskey a single malt whiskey and not a not a blended whiskey? So you mm. need to understand both the visual and verbal cues that anchor the brand, but you need to be about two thirds different. And what's happening is that the vast majority of the brands are actually two thirds similar. So what they're doing is wasting a third of their spend overselling the market. So effectively, most of the challenger brands. Uh, are reinforcing the position of the market leader. And what we do is help people identify exactly what that third is. 
and switch it from similarity to difference. So you're saying that the brands are actually playing to the category, or you're saying that they're playing too much into their <coughs> territory? Is that what you're Absolutely. saying? Absolutely. Yeah, they're playing to the category, because, but they're overplaying to the category. Um, and this is part of the diff- this is part of once you realise this and you've measured this, that's where you can see where the waste is. Um, and it's such a shame because it, it's boring for consumers to have mm. to hear the same thing, or whether you're B two B or you know, over forty five percent of our business is in B two B. It's, it doesn't make any difference. So this this over yeah this the uh, being overly generic, and this shows you that people aren't actually measuring differentiation. They're not understanding how to differentiate. How consumers, if you listen to consumers, they're telling you. If you listen to them a little deeper, they're telling you exactly how they want you to sell to them because mm-hmm. of the cycle of their psychological needs. And so the answer, to be honest, Anton, I, what we've done is not really anything revolutionary it's just mm-hmm. an evolution we've taken what what psychologists knew 30 years ago you're spot on i think the the, the age-old agency positioning and market positioning was a was a classic xy axis um generally built out of some theory and then we started to understand target audiences and make some assumptions or some some fairly robust assumptions based on data, as you say, maybe research groups to make that a bit richer. Um, but it was fairly, you know, fairly inside out, wasn't it? And then, well, I, I, I really felt it was, you know, you, you're looking at 20th century methods that were very, yeah, they were they were better than what went before, and all the rest. All we're trying to do is be better than what went before. But you know, it's almost like. Those two by two matrices with with the with the axes that are those are sort of made up as these are the what well, yeah. why are these things important and then it's like pin the pin the logo onto yeah, onto the matrix and 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 then taking these massive massive risks by you know saying oh because we because we spent vast amounts of money and we we've researched we've done loads and loads we've been out there talking to people you know this is the thing okay people have got this marketing sort of got this back to front we've been talking to all of these people and they've told us they need this look at tesco fresh and easy malt masses and masses and masses of, of research in southern california and people basically said we want things fresh and we want them quicker and we want them easy so they launched something called fresh and easy and the reality of it is that that was there was no demand that they they lost two billion, two billion pounds lost believing what people said, but because they asked lots of they because they they actually multiplied the error, they multiplied the error asking people what they wanted, and they lost all of that money on it. And so these these sorts of methods are are actually multiplying risk rather than reducing them. And I think we've got things the wrong way around. Mm-hmm. So before we talk about differentiation, we need to talk about similarity. You know, right. And we should, we need to understand similarity and we shouldn't be talking to consumers at all. We should be listening. So stop talking, start listening, and, and then understand what makes things the same. And effectively, what our deep listening robot, Bob, does is I identify similarity so by identifying similarity you can understand difference and then he gets into the psychological needs of, 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 of people so he takes the brands as people and this is super super important in the digital age in particular 
So, so you've hinted at Bob and you've uh, introduced Bob. You've lived with Bob for a while. Um, who is Bob and what is, uh, because artificial intelligence in marketing, it's, uh, dare I say, it's been overhyped, it's been a buzzword, has been applied pretty well. But of course, as marketers, we tend to explode out and look at all the AI uh, innovations and you hear yep. of autonomous vehicles and you hear of all sorts of things. But when we bring it back to marketing, whether it's deep listening or whether it's chatbots, you know, whatever it is. I'd love to hear more about uh, this Bob and, and what Bob is and why did you build it? You know, what was missing in the market that you couldn't find? Yeah, well, Bob, it's interesting as you say, uh, you use the word there, which I think is really important, which is applied. We think of Bob as applied intelligence because we've taken the best psychological thinking and essentially automated it. And I think people are rightly very um, suspicious of ideas about artificial intelligence. For, for us, what we were seeing was that there, there weren't metrics on, on understanding where consumers' deeper needs. And all of that, the psychologists had shown us that, that if you listen deeper, it's not what people say, it's the way that they say it that counts. And if you listen to brands, it's the same thing. I think about relationships. You know, about the big thing I've taken out, Bob is about is a tool. He's not out there searching the web. You know, we put things into Bob. You know, we put brand communications, leaders' speeches, and so on into Bob. We put consu- we we go out and and we take content from forums or chat rooms or blogs or upcycle existing research. And sometimes we have start conversations as well that 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 he can then analyze, but they'll always be from distance and they'll always be one-to-one. So Bob is a listeners from distance. And essentially what he's doing is looking for the, is looking for the psychological patterns and the, and the, and the weightings within uh, the way brands are speaking and consumers are speaking. And there was a brilliant piece of, of, uh, of work that was carried out by the University of Texas in Austin using uh, a piece of software that, that effectively is, uh, is Bob's sort of stepfather, oh. uh, and he's called Luke. And uh, they, went, they did a speed dating night, and they said to people, okay, what we want to do is record everything that you're talking about, and if you're okay with that, and we're going to follow up with you on this. And at the end of each of your, uh, each of your um, sort of speed dates, we want you to fill out something which says, you know, how much have you got in common with people? So they did all of this. So they went away and analysed how much people, how the couples that said how much they had in common and the people that matched their language styles. Not what they said, but the way that they were speaking. Um, you know, the, the number of personal pronouns they were using, their attitudes towards time and change, all of these sorts of things that are, that are, that are inside the, the language. The type of word, the type of language. Yeah, the type of language. I mean, I've, I'm happy perhaps to just talk about the three types of language a little later in this uh, that, that your listeners should be should be aware of. Um, but for this one, they discovered that, you, that the couples who match language styles were three times more likely to be together than couples make a date than couples who who had things in common, and they were three times more likely to still be together four months later. And they're going. It's so it's almost certain. On the, your friends and, the, and our, you know, the listeners think about the relationships they've chosen to be in. It's almost certain that you know, lovers, partners, friends, 
you you choose to be with them because you match in language style. Yeah, you're mirroring. Actually, that's not right. Yeah, yeah effectively, we don't choose the words we choose to use are are don't come from nowhere. We've got infinite choice that we can use, and it's containing all of this subconscious language that we're communicating between one another. And that's the sort of that's the sort of um, thing that Bob listens to. Okay, so what's the subconscious stuff? And a lot of this stuff, when you tell, show people this, it's right in front of our noses and we go, wow, there it was. So you're sounding like you're a psychologist or have you met a uh, psychologist from the University of Texas or what led you towards this, this psychology level? Yes, well, really it was just trying to find the answers. I am a brand strategist and I don't believe in inventing things that have already been invented. Um, so... I wanted to find out you know, how do we measure tone of voice? How do we find about how do we, you know, lots of people have software that's analyzing. And, and in fact, most of the social media analysis is, is based on concepts. And, you know, it's very useful to see the concepts that are associated with your brand or with, or with ideas associated with your brands. But they're based, they're based around concepts. I was much more interested in personalities and, and, and how you close that gap between what brands are, are saying and, and how customers are feeling. Mm. I mean, I bet all of us have walked in to a bar or seen somebody at work and gone, wow, don't they look great? And then they've opened their mouths. And you've gone, no way. Absolutely no way. And for many people, that's their experience with brands. You know, that brands have invested in looking really good and looking smart. And designers have been extraordinarily good over the last decade, mm. to a couple of decades. But, you know, and, and if you're taking a digital experience, all you've got is what you look like and what you sound like. And so it's almost like they're running. They're, they're, if, if you get it right, you run. And if you get it wrong, you're just hopping. You know, you've only got those two senses to work with. So you're saying there's a, there's a mismatch in that, in the either the text or the visual identity and what the consumer or the target audience is really uh, wanting to hear. And when you say Absolutely. what you hear, it's, it's you know, what they're speaking in their language and how they're phrasing and how they're interpreting your brand, yeah? Absolutely. How are they framing this? How, yeah, when we talk about framing, this is picture language. Um, so maybe this is a good time to talk about the three types of, of, of words that your listeners could think about. The, the first type of words to think about is, is what, what we call head words. These are conceptual ideas like responsibility or sustainability. And, and these ideas force the brain to work too hard. Yeah, business loves these words, but, but we as human beings don't. So Daniel Kahneman said, thinking is to humans what swimming is to cats. The brain can think, but it much prefers not to. So you use those conceptual words. They, they mean practically nothing. You know, education, loyalty, trust. You, know, you need to get behind them to understand what's behind them. The second type of language, which is way more effective, is body language. And this is, the, this is sensory language. So words like kiss. If I say kiss or kick, I'm actually firing up your motor system. And very appropriate to the weather here in the UK at the moment. If I say hot, sweaty, and you start talking about hot language, you can increase somebody's body temperature. And, you know, you think about, you know, sweetness or love yeah love is very strongly associated with sweetness honey and so on um 
Mm. Those words make you salivate. So this language is very, very uh, engaging for people because they don't have to think about it and their own senses um, kick in. But it's very, very difficult for brands to own that. But the, the, the deepest language and the, and the most important language is picture language. And this is where we describe one thing in terms of another. So the example I've always given is the example of you ask people what money is. You know, money is a conceptual idea. It's a head word. And people will say things like, oh, it's a means of exchange. Or they might use something a bit more emotional and say, oh, yeah, it's, um, you know, it's freedom or something or it's slavery. But actually, if I say money is water, people look a bit stunned. And you say, well, let just have a listen. Dip into your savings, a flood of donations, splashing out mm. on something new, um, public flotation. A, um, a drowning in debt, a waterfall of cash, turning on the spending tax. You know, and what yeah. do banks do? You know, they control banks, river banks. They control the flow of money. So we frame money as water, and that's actually because of our sensory interaction. The coins flow, they sound like water, and they're cool, like water. So we're using these sort of metaphorical picture frames all the time. And as we grow up, our brains wire up. You know, intelligence we tend to associate with light. You know, somebody's left in the dark. I'm feeling a bit dim about that. She's very bright. You know, a light went on, that light bulb moment. So this stuff is actually right under our noses. And that's all Bob does. He, he, he quantifies that and benchmarks it against massive benchmarks. So that he only shows us what's meaningful. So is Bob... Is Bob- identifying the type of language that's being used, whether that's text that it can identify. Is that natural language processing or what's, what's Bob actually doing? Yeah, what Bob is doing is going through the text that he analyses. As I say, it could be leader speeches, it could be social feeds or company social stuff. And what he's doing is going and looking at... Uh, we on the picture language, for example, we've got 69 different frames. And he's going in and going, okay, look, here are these frames. We don't even read it until Bob goes, go and have a look at this. This is statistically meaningful. And, and we go in and we check that it's not just literal talk. You know, so we work with Adidas and we're looking at Under Armour. And clearly the word armour is about protection. So, okay, we tough and he'll recalculate and then show us what's meaningful. And that allows us to understand how a whole market is, is framing ideas and attempting to persuade consumers. And we can, we can then position the market against that. And I'm very much looking forward to showing you where Trinity P3 is positioned mm. a little later. And, uh, and, and that really helps understand so bottom up, so everything he does is from bottom up. It's not like top down pattern matching that people do when they sort of use archetypes or whatever. It's yeah. all bottom up evidence, and we never know what we're going to dis- what we're going to what's going to discover. And usually you go, wow, you know, that makes perfect sense. There's usually no major shocks, but because you can measure it, you can now manage it, and that helps reduce the waste. And it, the biggest thing it does is help brands deliver consistently across all of their channels. Yeah, I think that's fascinating because the, as you would know, the digital world 
seems to have got caught up with digital marketing world, caught up with uh, behaviours and actions. So very much you know, predictive models and looking at the behaviours and consumer journeys um, and seeing where people are clicking or going to, whether it's voice activated or, or actually clicking or swiping. Um, but that to me seems very functional and almost the wrong way around. And as you're saying, we need to get much more clever around really listening to what people are telling us and it's all yeah. in time. Yeah. In a way, I think it's, I think in a way, <coughs> you know, what we do is really simple. And then you, there was a great example of a picture where you just used there, which everybody uses, which is consumer journey. Mm. Okay. Now we talk, but I, I bet you consumers don't think that they're on a journey. No. You know, I, you know, now it makes sense for us when we're pro managing processes to go, okay, we're on a you know, consumer's, here is a journey because here's a process. But then we start talking about it externally. And, and if a consumer isn't, but people don't think I'm on a journey. It's like a, it's like the old school sort of process model. Yeah. You know, What's the same with offline, online, you know? The, the consumers don't, there's no line. Consumers don't, no. don't treat us as a line over. They um, think much more organically. Yeah, I just want to find a product or a service and I want to use it or I want it to be seamless. Yeah. Even that we another, another good example here is when we talk about change. You know, we, we, we confuse. We, what, have we, what have we heard for the last seven, eight, nine years? Every time we go to a conference, you've got to transform, you've got to disrupt. We go on and on and on about disruption and so on. Mm. You know, now that makes perfect sense as an input on supply chains and, and so on. But the reality is... We've analysed hundreds of millions of words from brands and from consumers, and only 15% of the uh, of the thinking around change of consumers is about something radical or disruptive. And, mm -hmm. and that's so. You, if you go out and you don't understand your your consumers' attitudes towards change, and you go out and say we've got to reinvent this, it's going to totally transform your life. You've got a one in six chance of it being successful. And actually, that maps very well with the new product distribution curve, doesn't it, with, with uh, you know, innovators and early adopters? Yeah. But 50% of their thinking is about evolution and change, and 35% of their thinking is about, is about tradition, you know, classic, iconic, authentic sort of ideas. So it's really important, I think, that as marketers, we, we understand the, the language we use internally and then start projecting it onto other people is, to, is switching people off. We need to get behind how they're thinking, what their attitudes are to change. Yeah, and I think you've raised a really interesting point there. Uh, the industry is caught up with transformation. You know, we've heard that word and change. Uh, change, though, is risky. Change is scary. You know, it's, it, Probably opens the Pandora's box of psychological inertia. Um, when was the last? When was the last big thing, Anton? That you think really asked uh, consumers or people in general to do something radically different? I can only think of one. Well, I, my head straight away went to uh, pay. Now, this might just be an evolution. Not sure, but the ability to pay through your phone, pay by swiping. Uh, to me, for me, it was just a big shift in mindset of having yep. to carry cash. What about you? Airbnb. Yep. Airbnb. The idea of going away and staying in somebody else's house. 
Mm. But something like Uber, the idea that you use a mobile device to get a vehicle to take you from A to B, is not a radical shift or transformative shift for the customer. It's an evolutionary change. It's taking what's there and making it better. Yeah. You know, we did a lot of work with Samsung and they were talking about, you know, about the, the mobile device and how. I said, why do you keep selling to men? Why are you selling to men? And they said, well, because men are early adopters of technology. Whereas all of the listening that we did suggested they should be, they should be selling way more to women because women sell to other women. They yeah. said, oh, no, but they're, they're men are early adopters of new technology. So then I asked the question, when was the last time that you introduced any real new technology? <laughs> and it all went a bit quiet. So you go, you know, of course, they, they, what they've done is improve these things, and they're just absolutely remarkable. But, <laughs> you know, they, the iPhone, <coughs> excuse me, the iPhone was a radical shift. Well, it wasn't a radical shift removing the removing the keyboard, was it? Really? Well, um, I know you could argue both ways, couldn't you? I think the, the the ability to be able to swipe on something and be able to access online, as opposed to just make make phone calls, what the old big brick we used to carry around. Yeah, um, absolutely. That's absolutely. time at, at immediacy. I could now do things based on location. I could be geo targeted, etc. So, to me, that's a bit. That is a big shift. I think the marketing world is famous for getting excited about these big shifts. But as you touched on right at the beginning, you know, AI has been around for, for decades, you know, the 60s and 70s, famous for all these uh, machine learning uh, tests and, and, and practices. So it's nothing new. I think we're just in the world of marketing uh, excited about the buzzwords. I love what you're talking about that, we tend to get caught up on business speak and sort of vernacular that's typically used by marketers or agencies, and that's become probably our modus operandi. That's become the, the way we talk. And now when you look at consultancies and others in the space and maybe research groups, and let's maybe touch on this in, in this section, um, the way research groups have been run and the way consultancies have talked and the way that marketers have talked, maybe that's led towards quite formulaic um, creative or quite formulaic communication. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think the, this, uh, it's the failure to understand the generic. I mean, what Bob does, he, does, he doesn't replace people. Yeah. Bob, does, Bob does things. He, by surfacing and reading, so he reads 120 times faster than human beings can. And, and, and he's surfacing the psychological elements that, that human beings miss. But what he does you know, requires, bring, brings the best out of people, which is our, create, our creativity, our, our imagination, to apply that. So if you know where all the generics are, you can immediately state, say as an agency, okay, we can steer away from that. We know, and, we, and here we know we need to do X, Y, and Z to anchor this brand in, into its market. So we're not going to go too crazy on this. But these are the areas that, that we can work on, you know, um, I'll give you a good example like, like with, with women with breast cancer. You know, we were asked by, by a breast cancer charity in the UK, but two charities were coming together. And they, they said, look, we really need to understand how, the, how other charities are talking about and framing the idea of cancer. And so we listened to all of the charities in the UK. Just, you know, we took all of their websites and, they, and, it was, and then we mapped out, measured, and absolutely what they were saying 
was we're on a journey yeah to win the war so we you help us and we will and, and we will end that's the end of the journey the war on cancer you know cancer mm -hmm. is the enemy mm -hmm. and the language around this was extraordinary macmillan nurses which is a pastoral care for people and you know who, who had uh, you know, the prognosis is that their life is has not long to go. We're talking about their army of nurses, for heaven's sake. So I mean, just extraordinary. Very so strong say, well, yeah, a whole the whole image is you know we're fighting this we're fighting this en this enemy, and they said, well, look, we need to understand how women with breast cancer think about this. But how on earth do we find out? You know, how do we talk to women with breast cancer um, because it's such an emotional issue? And I said, we don't talk to them at all. We listen. And we just we found thirteen women who'd written blogs for for other women and sharing their experiences, and these these were monthly. So we took thirteen years worth of writing, and it's quite mm. tragic actually. So you know, three of these women actually were no longer with us. Mm. So Bob analysed the pictures that they the picture language that they were using, and it was totally different. So women with breast cancer. Um, were their, their big concern wasn't a journey. It was about movement and, ob and obstacles to movement. So they were saying, this has really slowed me down. This has put things in the, put things in the way of me getting things done. You know, I'm mm. giving examples, but you know, everything he did was bottom-up metrics. And, and you know, I've got to get stuff done quicker. And they weren't framing their illness as, a, as, as an enemy. They weren't framing the cancer as an enemy they had to beat that they were at war with. They framed it as a force. So they say things like, I've got a terrifying whirlwind of tests. This has hit my family hard. This has had a massive impact on, mm -hmm. on my life. So taking these things, we're able to change the way that, that breast cancer now um, communicated. And the way that instead of saying, help us and we will end the war on breast cancer, they said, help us and we will reduce the impact of breast cancer quicker. And their pastoral care side is called moving forward. So they absolutely got it and bought into the idea that women were thinking about movement and impediment to movement and, and, and that cancer for them was, was framed as a force, not as, a, as an, a, an enemy that they were at war with. Yeah, and framed in a way that obviously uh, the audience understands and, and emotionally attaches to, uh, which sounds sounds fantastic. In that example, connect, go them, connect, connect to them. That's what we're yeah. getting back to. Listen and connect, and you will be three times more likely to make that relationship, and, and twice as likely to keep it going. Which is uh, what everyone's been talking about. You know, we keep hearing from from marketers that we need a connection strategy, and you know, the media agencies uh, all talk about this. But what I'm taking away from this discussion is the way it's being talked about is certainly not connecting. And the way it's framed, right. the type of language. Have a listen. Yeah. Have a listen. Just listen to people and listen to your rivals, and then you'll find a position that you can own, mm. and and to make those connections. And if yeah, it's coming back to that whole idea, all we're looking to do is to reduce the gap between what brands are saying and 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 what consumers are feeling. That's a really really simple idea. And, and, it, and the best thing about Bob reading this stuff so fast is it happens quickly. Six working days and you'll know where your brand is positioned and you'll know more about your rivals than they do. Wow. Well, I was going to ask you, what, what is the process? So you touched on earlier that you can take, 
I guess, a myriad of different forms, whether that's what website, copy, uh, speeches or text or emails. Yeah, what, leader speeches, campaigns. The, the, the inputs for on, on the brand side can be, can be anything, really. They could be, they could be thought leadership pieces, uh, uh, leader speeches, um, Twitter feed, LinkedIn, Mm-hmm. Yeah, all the sorts of stuff you'd expect, you know, CSR reports, whatever it is, can, can go in. Um, from the consumer side, you know, if people are talking about something, it's remarkably, remarkably uh, easy to get into the specific threads. So for people like Johnson & Johnson, we want, who want to understand motherhood, we went, went on to um, Baby Centre, which, which is their... The, the US is it's where mums go and talk. And we've just picked up specific threads on baby's skin, baby at night time, and baby at bath time. So you're, you're listening to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of women and understanding the sensory differences. You know, the, 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 we discovered some really interesting stuff, actually. You know, but the, the way to talk about skincare was not about don't associate it with the baby, make it an it so it's outside. And interestingly, it was about the way it looked, you know, so the visual side was really important. Um, dads were, dads really came into it at bath time. And that was all about part because of all the water and the splashing and saying, okay, you can, you know, your, your customers are giving you um, a, a license to be much more fun um, when you talk about bath time, for example. Or where people are giving up smoking. So smoking cessation, you know, there's lots of forums where people are talking about this. With whiskey, there's people who are whiskey experts who, who, who talk about specific brands so you can find out what they're speaking about. So that's all really helpful if people are having a conversation. If they're not having a conversation, then we do have to start one. But we'll always do it at distance. So, you know, it's not a good time to get people together at the moment if it was ever a great idea. And for example, we work with Kellogg's in Canada and with a with a research partner in Canada, and and you know we got lots of people in their homes and and we helped design the research and and it was you know, about family breakfast. What is a family breakfast? And then there's this vast amount of of data and text data that then goes into Bob. So you could take great top line stuff. And then Bob surfaces the things that, that we would have missed and wouldn't have picked up. Um, and incredibly, incredibly useful. And we, we, we stopped a brand that was in serious decline from going into decline. Uh, you know, the, the sale decline stopped. And what was particularly fascinating about that is that there was an ad. They sent us an ad as a test and they said, this ad, we want you to tell us whether this ad was incredibly successful reasonably successful or not successful at all and they sent us this ad and we were able to say and it researched incredibly well it was entertaining and people loved it but as soon as they aired it we said this ad is a psychological disaster and they said absolutely right as soon as we aired this within two weeks sales started to fall out of it and it was because a family is about a container and this was a woman who was getting married who was looking who, who couldn't make up her mind whether to say yes or no. And, and the funny bit was, you know, you don't have to make a choice because we've done this for you. But she's looking to the exit <laughs> to get out of the container and not get into the family container, you know. Oh. Uh, and the, the hilarious thing is our partner in Canada, 
who are very smart people, they said, oh, it's a shame to say, actually, when, when we were working with Kellogg's, we helped them with that advert, and now we know. And that's the point, you know, we all have to put up our hands up and go, we've all, you know, this is about learning and just, uh, and just making things better and simpler. Yeah, so it sounded like, from, from what I'm hearing and uh, doing Anton listening, um, that you're gleaning better insights that leads to a better uh, brief, if I can make it that simple, to creatives to then build a better uh, idea that emotionally resonates. Absolutely. So for Beam Sun Tory, we worked on on uh, what 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 is a single malt whiskey, and I can tell you that a single malt whiskey is a religion. You know, we've got semiotics mm-hmm. involved, ver- visually, verbally, um, everything. All the metrics said single malt whiskies are a religion. You know, they they're about groups of men were yeah, quiet men isolated in these monastery type buildings the light yeah. comes into the darkness and there's an underlying sort of sensory shift from the rough to the smooth really really fascinating stuff <coughs> and then then we went with these specific brands which take one of them they had massive problems because it had gone too far it had lost its anchor so we're able to show the visual and verbal anchors and we made videos for each of the brands. So there's a 15-minute video for each of those brands, and they use that for every single agency that comes on board. For any of those three brands, our video goes out to brief the agency, saying, look, these are the cues you use to anchor it, and these are the differences. And that, and it comes back to David Ogilvy, with we'll square the circle. Give me the freedom of a tight brief. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's the point, yeah, that you, you want to get a tighter brief for marketers, and their agencies to uh, to actually carve out a positioning rather than being generic, the two thirds generic, focusing on the one third, or sorry, the two thirds making it different and distinctive. Yeah, getting putting us humans with all of our brilliance, our creativity, our strategic thinking. There's never going to be any AI that does that. Seriously, people don't need to be worried about it. It just allows us to 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 focus on things that are going to deliver. Sounds great. Look, Alistair, we're running out of time, but I really appreciate uh, your time and uh, talking to you over there in sunny England. I wouldn't uh, have believed it would be sunny over there, freezing cold here in Sydney. <laughs> just missing you, just missing you boys over here, taking us on in the ashes. Uh, we'll bring that on. But really appreciate your time. Thanks for sort of delving into uh, the world of AI from your perspective. Um, I love your pragmatism. I love hearing about uh, reducing waste in marketing and that psychology-driven angle of just getting much closer to, to reality with consumers sounds, uh, sounds magnificent. So thanks, Alistair, for your time. You're most welcome. It's been a pleasure. But before we finish, I've just got one final question. If Bob listens, how can we talk to him? Mm-hmm.